All right, guys, let's get started. Thank you all for coming back. Um, excited about today's lesson. Quick recap from yesterday. We're talking about stories. Yesterday, we talked about how stories shape and mold us more than anything else. We talked about how your life is a story. Your story needs to be shared with others, and your story needs to be shaped by God's story, which is the Bible. We talked about how God is the master storyteller. Today, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about another master storyteller who actually comes into this story in Genesis chapter 3. He comes in and he tells Adam and Eve a story and convinces them to eat the fruit that God told them not to eat. And when they did that, all creation was ruined. All creation fell under a curse. And we live under that curse today because that same storyteller is still telling us lies. And Satan is influencing us in ways that sometimes we don't even realize every single day. And so what I want to do today is talk about some of the lies and some of the stories that Satan is telling. But first off, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 in your Bibles. It's towards the end. 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter 5, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. Here we go. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, would you come and open our hearts to your story, to the truth, so that we can see the false stories of the enemy in the light of the truth. So would you illuminate culture and the world around us so that we can see uh, that beacon of light that is your holy word more clearly. And God, would you take away any distractions we may have outside of this room and help us to be present in the moment right now? God, would you give me words because my words don't mean anything. Would you let your spirit move among us and shape us and mold us, turn us away from the lies of the enemy, and turn us toward the truth of you and your word. We ask this in Christ's name. I want to talk about how stories shape us, but also how particularly false stories can also shape us. Studies show that customers are 63% more likely to buy a product due to a testimonial. Testimonial is a story. So if if a customer hears another customer telling a story about a product, they're 63% more likely to buy it. So several years ago, these two guys decided to run an experiment to test that out guy named Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn, they wanted to see if they could resell cheap knickknacks on eBay that had no value whatsoever. So they went around to thrift stores and antique shops, and they just gathered up a bunch of stuff. But they had a couple rules. The, rule, well, the main rule was this. None of the items could be of any use. Like You couldn't actually get a utensil like a fork or a saw, something that somebody could fix up and use. They had to be basically worthless pieces of junk. Like a wooden horse you put on a mantle or a garden gnome or something. 
They, they spent a total of $129 on hundreds of objects. And then they hired over 200 creative writers to write fake stories about each object. Stories that were sometimes funny or sad or maybe had sentimental value. A story maybe like, like, oh, I used to garden with my mom and one day I accidentally broke the gnome with my shovel and I thought she was going to be mad at me, but we went inside and we glued it back together and it's been sitting in that garden for 30 years and every time I see it, I think of that moment. Like just a sweet, sentimental story, completely made up, but a story nonetheless. And they attach stories to each object on eBay and they turn $129 into a profit of over $8,000. Purely based on fake stories. Here's my point, guys. We were made for stories. We talked about that yesterday. But we are also gullible. And we fall prey to false stories day in and day out. And what I want you to see is that the world... Satan, your enemy, the world is not trying to sell you stuff. They're trying to sell you stories. And they're trying to get you to believe those stories and to live your life based on those stories. And so I want to talk about five lies or five stories that I think Satan is telling us in our culture today that I want you to be aware of, that I want you to learn to combat. So the first one we're going to talk about, the first lie that I think our enemy is telling us, It's the lie of listening to your heart. Listen to your heart. That's number one. How many of y'all have seen the movie Moana? Okay. Uh, I have a little kid, so I've watched Moana. There's plenty to like about Moana. It's got great music. It's fun. Pretty well put together story. Uh, There's also plenty not to like about it. And here's a little side note, too, by the way. Whenever like, there's a story out there that just gives you something that's bad or wrong or whatever, or it goes against the gospel, it doesn't necessarily ruin the whole story. You need to learn to have wisdom to, and discernment to be able to see the good and the bad in every story. Okay, So we're doing the same thing right now with Moana. There's plenty to love about Moana. I want to give you the things not to love about it. So Moana is this little girl who lives in an island out in the Pacific. Her father is the chief. Now, Moana's dad wants Moana to grow up and be the future chief and the leader of these people. And they have, they have this one rule on the island that says you cannot go beyond the reef. And what did we talk about yesterday? When you give people rules, they just want to break them. Well, Moana just wants to break that rule. She wants to go beyond the reef. She wants to explore the vast open ocean. And she wants to just be a voyager. Okay? So, Moana is torn right now because her dad wants her to stay at home and be a leader, but she has this gnawing inside of her that wants to go out and explore, and she doesn't know what to do. So she sings this song, and she says, I can lead with pride, I can make us strong, I'll be satisfied if I play along, but the voice inside sings a different song, what is wrong with me? Well, then in comes the grandmother, and the grandmother is like this kooky outcast but Disney loves kooky outcasts, and so they present her as the voice of reason, okay, even though she is the kooky outcast. And this is what the grandmother says. You are your father's daughter, stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And when that voice starts to whisper, follow the farthest star. Moana, that voice inside is who you are. That is a lie. Grandma is not telling the truth right now, and you need to be aware of that, okay? That's a lie. That little voice inside of you is not who you are. 
nor should you listen to that little voice inside of you because it's probably lying to you. Do you want proof? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I'm going to repeat that again. The heart, that little voice inside of you, is deceitful above all things, not just some things, all things, and it's desperately sick, and nobody can understand it. So yeah, that's great advice. Let's listen to that thing, okay? The thing that's desperately sick, that's trying to deceive us and lead us astray, and that nobody can understand. That's what the world wants you to listen to. And what I'm telling you is this, your heart has been tainted with the curse of sin, and it should not be the thing that is guiding you. Which again, I'm going to piggyback off what we said yesterday. It's why God gave us his word. It's why he gave us the church and why he gave us community. So that we can be shaped and formed by his story. Because that's what sanctification is. That's an old theological term. Sanctification is this. is God using his word and his spirit to shape and mold and renew our hearts so that our hearts would follow him. Because by themselves, our hearts are sinful and broken, and they need redeeming and restoring. Don't follow your heart, follow God's word. Number two, the second lie. You are your own hero. You are your own hero. I'm picking on Disney this morning, but there's another show my kids watch called The Lion Guard. It's like a spinoff of The Lion King, and um, it's it's a fine show. There's, There's fun things about it. But there's this scene where this hippo is talking to this little baby elephant, and the elephant's super insecure because he's not as strong as the other elephants and doesn't realize he's going to grow up to be like the most massive animal in the world. But he's just super insecure, and the hippo's talking to the elephant and sings a song, and this is what the hippo says. No need to worry. Hold your head up with pride. Believe in yourself. There's no reason to hide. It's there within you, the hero inside. That is also a lie. You have no hero inside of you that's like just going to save the day. Because what the world wants you to believe is that when you face trouble or hardship in your life, that the best thing that you can do is just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and keep plugging along, mister. Because you've got it inside you. You're strong enough. You can face your own giants. And you can be that hero that you want to be so badly. And that's not true. You want proof? Let me tell you a story about something that happened to me. A year and a half ago, I started on staff with RYM, and my first day on the job, we were at a conference in Nashville, a youth leader training conference, uh, back in January of 2018, and my first task that they gave me as an employee of RYM was to go to the grocery store, get two gallon buckets of ice cream, and bring them back and put them in the freezer, and I'm like, thanks for believing in me, guys. I think I can handle that. So I went to the store, got this ice cream, brought it back. I come into the dining hall. Nobody's really showed up yet, so the dining hall's empty. I walk into the kitchen. It's this big, like, industrial-sized kitchen, and it's completely dark, but I hear music playing in the back, like on a radio or something. I said, hello? No answer. Hello? I'm holding the ice cream, and I'm kind of, like, fiddling around with my elbow on the wall until I find a light switch, and I flick it on, and I look, and there front of me in the back of the room is this guy just standing there (laughs) staring at me in the dark and it catches me off guard I'm like oh hey uh I um I need to to put this 
somewhere, you got a freezer or something? He stares at me for another awkward five seconds, which is a really long time in this, uh, this moment. And then he says, you can put it in my freezer. And he turns around and starts walking. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I'm following this guy through these long, dark corridors in this industrial-sized kitchen past all this cutlery and utensils. So I start following him. And we move through these aisles into the back. And he takes me in through the walk-in refrigerator. This has like shelves and stuff lining. <laughs> shelves lining the walls. And we go through the refrigerator into the walk-in freezer. It's maybe like 10 feet by 10 feet. Uh, it's freezing cold, for lack of a better word. It's a freezer. It's like zero degrees. And he points to an empty spot on the back shelf and says, you can put it back there. I said, okay. So I take the first big drum of ice cream, put it up there, grab the second bucket, put it up there, turn around. The door is closed and the guy is gone. Uh, and in my head, I'm actually kind of giggling because I'm thinking, wouldn't it be hilarious if the door was locked? Because like in a horror movie, in a horror movie, that's what would happen. Like the door would be locked, but this is real life. That stuff doesn't happen in real life. So I'm walking to the door, just kind of like giggling to myself, maybe just to kind of make myself feel a little bit better in the moment. And I go over and I grab the door handle, I pull on it and it doesn't budge and it dawns on me, he locked me in the freezer. <laughs> Starting to panic a little bit. Starting to freak out, but I've still got my wits about me. There's no other exit in the room, and I stop and think, okay, what do I do? What do I do? I've got a phone in my pocket. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to call my boss. I'm going to say, get down here to the kitchen. Let me out of the walk-in freezer. Arrest that man! <laughs> and then we can just go about our day. I pull my phone out, look in the top left corner, and what does it say? Of course I don't have service. I'm in an airtight metal container in the middle of nowhere. That's when the panic really starts to set in. Because I have no way of communicating with anyone and no way of getting out of this freezer. And I actually start to think about my own death. I'm starting to think about mortality and I'm thinking, this is it? This is how I go? I, I didn't die, by the way, in case you were wondering. Thinking, this is it? Like, I, they're gonna find my cold, lifeless body clutching a half-eaten gallon of ice cream in the back corner of the walk-in freezer at Camp Wiggy Wagon. Because the last thing I'm going to do before I freeze to death is eat as much ice cream as possible. I'm freaking out at this point. The only thing I can think to do is to jump up and just start pounding on the door in hopes that somebody somewhere will hear me, hear me. And so I'm just going, help, help. I'm locked in the freezer. Help, let me out. And I'm just banging and banging. This goes on for like 60 seconds, which is a really long time when you think you're about to freeze to death, by the way. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I hear someone fidgeting on the other side of the door, and I stop, and I get quiet. I hear this sound of the vacuum seal of the door releasing. And it swings open and this waft of warm air washes over me. And there before me is the guy who locked me in. I quickly stick my foot in the door so we can't close it again. I say, dude, what are you doing? You locked me in the walk-in freezer. I've been pulling and pulling on it. It wouldn't budge. And he looks at me and goes, did you try pushing it? So it turns out the door to the walk-in freezer was a push and not a pull. And in my panic, I failed to try the only other option that was presented. Guys, I had two choices. I could either pull or push. I went with a pulling method. That didn't work. And I said, that's it. I'm going to die in here. Didn't even think to try anything else. It's not like it, I had to like crack some code to a bank vault or something with a thousand different options. I had two choices. 
My point is this. The world wants you to believe that you can be your own hero and you can save yourself when you're in trouble. And I just don't buy it because I can't even save myself from an unlocked freezer, guys. This is what the fall has done to us. It's actually made us stupid. It has actually made us stupid. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be your own hero. There is no hero inside of you. When you are in trouble, when you are in distress, you need someone outside of yourself. This is what, this is actually what I love about the Marvel movies. I talked about this yesterday. There are several stories out there that tell you that you can be your own hero. One of the things I love about the Marvel movies is that they tell you that you can't save yourself, but there is a hero outside of you who can save you and who will save you, oftentimes at great cost to themselves. That's a good story. That's a story that patterns the story of the gospel. And I want you to start seeing things in that light. To start seeing the other stories around you in the light of the gospel. Because you cannot save yourself. You need a hero who can. And there is one who has come and who has given up everything to rescue us from our distress and our sin and our bondage. That's the story of the gospel. You are not your own hero. Jesus is. The third thing. Outward appearance is everything. That's the third lie. Outward appearance is everything. Let me tell you another story. When I first moved to Houston, I had a 2007 white Pontiac Grand Prix. And I also lived in a pretty rough neighborhood. And my car got broken into like three times in the first month of living in Houston. She's like, hey, welcome to Houston. But one of the people who broke into it, stripped the keyhole on my driver's side door so that I couldn't stick my key in anymore. And there was no keyhole on the passenger side or in the trunk. That was it. And also my clicker like stopped working. I probably could have gotten a new battery for that, but I was young and stupid and didn't know how to deal with locks clearly, as you can see from the last story. But I just kind of lived with it. And I told myself, okay, I guess I can't lock my door ever again. That's just going to be like my new thing. I don't lock my doors. So one night, I went to Walmart to get a few things. It's kind of late at night. Parking lot's fairly empty. I go inside. I come back out. My car is parked under one of those like parking lot lamps that illuminates what's underneath it. I look up ahead of me. I see a woman sitting in the driver's seat of my car trying to crank the engine. My first thought is, it's a mistake. She thinks it's her car, maybe. You know, she's just messed up. And then she looks up at me and gives me this look like a kid who just got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Her eyes get wide, and then she starts trying to crank the engine faster, and then it occurs to me, oh my goodness, she's stealing my car right in front of me. What do I do? And I start moving towards her. She looks up again and kind of freaks out again and starts cranking the engine. And then I start sprinting, and then I see her reaching for the lock on the door trying to find it. Little does she know that if she does that, it's actually going to work really well because I can't unlock my door. So I'm sprinting as fast as I can to get to this door before she can lock it. I grab the handle, pull it open. She reaches behind her and grabs a phone, (laughs) pulls it out and says, stop her, I'll call the cops. And I said, you stop her, I'll call the cops. (laughs) She said, Get out of my car. You're attacking me. I said, you're not in your car. You're in my car. And she said, what are you talking about? And she goes, oh, and looks around and says, this isn't my car. I said, yeah, it's my car. 
<laughs> she goes, I'm so sorry. So basically, it was just a big misunderstanding. I thought she was stealing my car. She thought I was coming to attack her in an empty parking lot in the middle of the night. We giggled about it. She gets up, walks off. Everything's fine. I sit back down, crisis averted, but as I sit in my driver's seat, I notice that the seat has been scooted up like 10 inches, the steering wheel has been lowered, the rear view mirror has been adjusted, and the side mirrors have been angled inward. And she did all of that, and not once did it occur to her that maybe she was in the wrong car. <laughs> and then I hear a knock on the window, and I roll the window down, it's the woman, and she says, I'm sorry, can I get my groceries out of your trunk? <laughs> I had like a guitar and basketball shoes back there. None of that tipped her off, guys. Like, she just basically rearranged everything inside of my car, but still was thinking, yeah, this is my car. Yeah, like, none of this is the way I left it. You know, I probably just forgot, you know, and scooted my seat back to get out, but it's my car. Yeah, we're good. None of that tipped her off. I was astounded at that, but the, the longer I've distanced myself from that story, the older I've gotten, the more I think that's actually very human of her, and I have a little more sympathy, because here's what she did. She walked into a parking lot, and she saw a white Pontiac Grand Prix that was very similar to the one that she had, like two aisles over, and she went, that's my car. Completely judging it based on the outward appearance, ignoring all the things on the inside that should have pointed her to the truth. And isn't that what we do every day? Isn't that what we do every day? We judge things purely based on the outward appearance, completely ignoring the things on the inside that should be pointing us to the truth. Because we're obsessed with outward appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. In 2017, CNN wrote a report that said that 55% of plastic surgeons reported that they saw patients who purely wanted to look better in selfies, and that's the only reason they went to a plastic surgeon. Over half of the plastic surgeons in our country said that they saw patients who came to them only because they wanted to look better in selfies. Because we are a culture obsessed with outward appearance. In that same uh, article that I read by CNN, they talked about a clinical term called Snapchat dysmorphia, which sounds like this weird made-up word, but it is an actual clinical term that describes something that happens to us the more we absorb social media. So when, when you're on Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, you have these filters you can put your photos through, your selfies through. And what happens is you slowly begin to see, over time, a better-looking version of yourself staring back at you. And you think that that's what you should look like all the time. And it actually distorts our own self-image. And the word that they use for that is Snapchat dysmorphia. It is an actual clinical term. Do you see how like, this social media world, this culture we live in, is so obsessed with outward appearance? And the way that they are driving this obsession with outward appearance is, believe it or not, through stories. In 2016... Instagram copied Snapchat by adding the stories section of their home page, which basically means you can take a picture or video or something and post it on there, but it's only going to be there for 24 hours and it'll disappear. You tell a story about something. I find it incredibly ironic that the thing that has driven Instagram to so much success is the word stories, because since they introduced that element, they have added 600 million new users in the last three years. 400 million people 
claim to use Instagram stories, not just sometimes, but on a daily basis. 400 million people use them every day. This world that has kind of made us obsessed with outward appearance is being driven by stories. The actual word itself, stories, is shaping what we do on social media. Why? Because we buy stories more than anything else. And these stories are kind of making us obsessed with outward appearance. Now look, I'm not saying like run and cancel your Instagram accounts. I have Instagram. I'm not saying social media is bad. What I'm saying is you need to have wisdom and you need to be more aware of the stories that they're telling you. Of the stories of this obsession with outward appearance. We just read in 1 Peter that our enemy, the devil, is roaming around like a roaring lion trying to devour us. Well, if Satan is a roaring lion, then social media is like the savannah. It's where he is most at home. And he will attack us in many, many ways. And you need to have your guard up. You need to be careful. You need to be aware of the lies that are being told through this world and this culture, especially on social media, because it can make us more obsessed with our own self-image and outward appearance, and it can make us judge people based purely on their outward appearance. Outward appearance is not everything. The Lord looks on the heart. Number four, life is an individual journey. Life is an individual journey. I read an article by a guy named David Brooks in the New York Times a couple months ago, and he said, it was an article about five lies that our culture is telling us. And one of those that he mentioned was that life is an individual journey. And basically he says this, that the lie that the culture is trying to get us to believe is that life is all about racking up experiences, not responsibilities. It's all about getting these cool experiences as you grow up, not responsibilities. He actually quoted the Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. That's the lie that our culture is telling us. Like, you're going to go out, you're going to do all these amazing things and get all these awesome experiences because that's what life is about. Well, that's really not what life is about. And this was not a Christian article. This was from a secular point of view. And studies have shown, as he quoted in this article, that the people who live the most fulfilling lives are the people who actually settle down and love a community for long periods of time and take on responsibilities. Why is that the most fulfilling life? Because you and I were made to serve not to gain and rack up as many cool experiences. I'm not saying that experiences are bad or that going on vacation or any of that stuff is bad or making memories is bad. I'm glad that you're here at this trip. This is awesome. These are things that we need in our lives that use little breaks to break up the daily patterns and routines. But what I'm saying is this is not what life is all about. Gaining cool experiences is not what life is all about. That's what the world kind of wants you to believe, especially at the age you're at now. When life is all about building your resume to impress people and racking up these cool experiences so that you can put it on a sheet of paper and show this college so that they'll accept you. So that one day you can get a really good job and a good house and a good car and a nice family. And you're going to work, work, work really hard and you're going to grind it out. But you're going to justify all that work and that maybe absence from your family by going on these elaborate vacations and making memories and gaining experiences and then come back home and get right back to the grindstone. And this is the cycle that is repeated day in and day out, year in and year out, until eventually you retire. And then what do you do when you retire? You go and you seek more experiences until you die. That's the American dream. But that's not what life is about. 
I think that when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at the people who were celebrated in the new heavens and the new earth. Because Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I think Jesus is going to celebrate Steve the plumber from Toledo, Ohio, who was just like, you know, did his job faithfully for years and loved his community and his family really well and was active in his church. And like, these are the people that build the kingdom of God, the people who serve and who love and who take on responsibilities. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Life is not this individual journey that's all about like keeping yourself unattached and going about it yourself. Life is about becoming part of a community and serving those around you and taking on those responsibilities. That's what life is all about. All right, number five. This is the last one. And this might be the toughest one. Maybe the one that Satan uses the most. It's the lie that the Bible is unreliable. The lie that you can't trust God's word. Some of you may be having those doubts right now. And those are legitimate doubts, and I understand them. I have them too. Some of you may be hearing other people in your life, friends or teachers, who are saying that. Uh, you'll probably definitely hear that if you go to college, like at a university or something that's maybe not a Christian school. You'll hear people throughout your life trying to convince you that this book is unreliable. You can't trust it. And I, I, we don't have enough time to really dive into all the reasons why you can trust the Bible. And I'm not knowledgeable enough to give you all of those reasons. But I want to talk about two things this morning. Two practical things you can take away. And this may sound a little bit like a history lesson, but you guys have been great. Bear with me. Keep plugging along because this stuff is important. I want you to know that you can trust the Bible. The two things we're going to talk about. Manuscripts and eyewitnesses. What's a manuscript? A manuscript is basically a copy of an ancient document. So when historians look at it, a really old piece of history, they're going to judge the authenticity based on how many copies or how many manuscripts exist from that time period. Because the more copies you have, the more they can compare them and see how they were written and how closely they line up and see how far it was spread and how many other people could corroborate the evidence, like eyewitness accounts and things like that. So they judge it based on manuscripts. Just to give you a frame of reference, these are all historians who lived around the time of Jesus. Herodotus, Greek historian, has 109 existing manuscripts of his piece of history. Historians look at that and say, yeah, that's authentic. Livy, a Roman historian, has 150 existing manuscripts from that time period. Historians look at that and say, yeah, that's authentic. Tacitus, a Roman historian, has 33 original manuscripts. Pliny the Elder has 200 all right, let me, let me mention those numbers, 109, 150, 33, 200. Historians look at that and say, that's enough manuscripts for us to say that that work is authenticated. You know how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament that exist during the time period it was written? Over 18,000. Over 42,000 of the Old Testament, of codices and scrolls and manuscripts. That's like 60,000 copies of the Bible and certain books of the Bible, and historians still look at that and say, nah, we can't trust that. It's not authentic. The only explanation I can come up with is the devil, is that Satan doesn't want us to believe the Bible. And so he works really hard to convince us that something's not true, even when a lot of the evidence points otherwise. But we, we can take it a step further and talk about eyewitness accounts. So, 
We have at least 18 different sources that we know of from the first century that claim that Jesus was a real person. 18 different sources. 12 of them were not even Christian sources. So two-thirds of the sources from the first century say that Jesus, that said that Jesus was a real person aren't even Christian. Just for frame of reference, we have more evidence that Jesus existed than we do that Julius Caesar existed. That's crazy. Okay, so Jesus was a real person. Let's establish that right now. He was a real person. There are some people out there who want you to believe that he was not. He was a real person. He actually existed. Now let's talk about who he was and what he really did. Who were the first people who saw him rise from the dead? Women. Women. That's a big deal because in that day and age in Palestine, a woman's testimony was considered unreliable. And they were not even allowed to testify in court because they were considered second-class citizens. So if the disciples are making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, they're not going to say that the first people who saw him were women. Why in the world would they say that? The only reason they would say that is because it actually happened. It's because it's true. Even Jesus' enemies couldn't really explain who he was. There were several first century Jews who hated Jesus. And they wrote in the Babylonian Talmud, that Jesus was a sorcerer who led Israel astray. Now that's interesting. Because you'd think they would just say, hey, you know all those miracles the disciples were trying to tell you about? They didn't actually happen. Don't believe it. It's not true. But they couldn't say that because there were too many eyewitnesses who saw it. So what they said instead was, yeah, 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 that, that, that happened, but he was a sorcerer and he led Israel astray. If the enemies of Christianity had to call Jesus a sorcerer, it means that something miraculous happened. Even his enemies couldn't explain that away. Lastly, the number of eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that at one time Jesus appeared to over 500 people after he rose from the dead. Guys, all it takes is one eyewitness to sway the vote of a jury. Jesus appeared to over 500 people at once. And this is what Paul says. He says, many of whom are still alive today. You know what he's saying? He's saying, go ask them. I'm listening to a podcast right now about a murder that took place in Mississippi in the 90s. And this investigative journalist is going in and trying to figure out, like, did the right person really get convicted? I'm just trying to uncover some of the evidence. And what she's doing is she's going and talking to the eyewitnesses who were there and alive during that time. And she's saying, you, you were alive, you were there that day, what did you see? And this person might say, well, I saw this, but I didn't see that much, but you should go talk to so-and-so who lives on 4th Street, because they were there and they saw the whole thing, so she's just kind of going from person to person. Why? Because eyewitness testimony matters. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul's saying, look, I know that it's really hard to believe that this person, Jesus, came back to life and rose from the dead, but I'm telling you, he appeared to 500 people. Do you want proof? Go talk to them. Many of them are still alive today. Paul is inviting the doubters to enter into this story. So here's what I'm saying. This is, this is to summarize what, what's happening here. Can you really believe the Bible? Jesus was a real person. Jesus appeared to 500 people after he rose from the dead, which means that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus believed the scriptures. If he believed him, you can believe him. Okay, what I just gave you was a logical line of reasoning. This is not some fairy tale we're making up. I'm not asking you to grasp at straws. 
Jesus was a real person. He appeared to 500 people after he rose from the dead, which means he is who he says he is. And if he believed the scriptures, then you can believe the scriptures. He loves us so much that he gave us real historical markers and historical evidence to help you believe in him. Because he knew that years from now, we would be asking these questions. Did all that stuff really happen? Did Jesus really exist? Did he really rise from the dead? And he gave us his word to say, yes, it's part of the story. There's real historical evidence for you to believe in this. And I'm telling you this to encourage you that you can walk away believing this book, believing this story, because it's true. It really happened. And the last thing I'll say is this. This leads into what we're going to talk about tomorrow. In Matthew 7, I'm just going to read this. You don't have to turn there. In Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching the crowds the scriptures because he believed them. And in verse 28, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Okay, what is a scribe? A scribe is someone who copies down what someone else says. But what is the root word of authority? I bet you can figure this out. Author. Do you know what Matthew's saying? Guys, this is awesome. This is what we're going to get into tomorrow. Matthew is saying that Jesus didn't teach the scriptures as someone who just copied down what someone else said. Jesus taught the scriptures as if he wrote them. Because he did. Because he is the author of this story. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about how our stories look in the light of the author's story. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You loved us so much that you did not leave us in the dark. You gave us a story, and it's a story that has been illuminated throughout history. And it has real historical markers that show us that you were real came down to earth, and you are who you said you were. And we can trust that and believe it. And I pray that you would give us faith, because even then, even in spite of all this, we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. And ultimately, we need faith to believe in you. Would you give us that faith? And would you help us to trust and believe in your word and in your story as we leave this place? Would you give us wisdom not to believe the stories and the lies of this world? Would you help us to see that you are the author who is writing our story because you have loved us with a love that we can't imagine. So God, we worship you and we adore you. Thank you for giving us this chance to look in your word and to see you more clearly. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs>